Testing, testing. Yeah, this is comfortable for okay. me. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Right, welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today, I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I'm gonna do a different kind of show because I realized that, let me back up a little bit. I've said this before, but the goal of this podcast is to make scientists a little bit more relatable to the public. And I realized that by interviewing only doctors and people that are really far ahead into science already, I might not be achieving that goal. I had a couple of PhD students or recent PhDs but mostly I've had professors and, and people that have been doing science for a long time. And on Friday, last Friday, was it last Friday? Yes, it was last Friday. Last Friday. I was in an internal conference in Texas State and I ran into this young scientist that she's doing really interesting research and, I, and the idea popped into my mind. I, ne I need to make it not only about the people that are already success successful in science, but people that are just starting. I would like to to see their perspective. So today, I have a, a special guest. Her name is Desire, Desiree. Desiree. Desiree Jackson, sorry, this, this is my bad. Mrs. Jackson, uh, her pronouns are she and her, and she's a graduate student research assistant at the Meadows Center. And she's currently completing a master's of science in sustainability studies. Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. You used to be the president of the Bobcat Stream Team. Yes, I was back in 2019. Um, I was the president a little bit until past COVID before someone else took it over. But yeah, it's the student chapter of Texas Stream Team, our statewide volunteer community science program. Nice. How, how are you doing, first of all? I'm doing great. How Good. about you? Good. Thank you so much for being on, on the show. And thank I'm, you for inviting me. Thank you for coming on such a short notice. Thank yeah, you. no problem. Thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah. So I, as I said, I met you and you were presenting a really interesting study that you performed that the title was something like Citizen Science and E. coli, an optical brightener monitoring prototype as a polluting screen tool. Yes. Okay. So it's a little, a lot, right? Yeah, going on I, there. I probably need to tweak that title a little <laughs> no, bit. No, I think the title <laughs> is, is right, but there's a lot for, for our audience. So let's, let's start from the beginning. And can you please tell us what E. coli is and why do we have to monitor it? Yeah. Thank you for asking this question. I think we grow up hearing about E. coli a lot, but we might not have a good grasp of what it is. But it's a bacteria that originates in the digestive tract of warm-blooded animals, and it um, shows up in the feces of warm-blooded animals. And that includes wildlife, pets, livestock. People were included um, in that category. Um, and the state, like you said, it they we monitor for it because bacteria can carry pathogens that can cause us to be sick. E. coli, in particular, it causes gastrointestinal disease, um, illnesses like vomiting, bloating, diarrhea. 
Uh, if you get it in your eyes or in your nose or ears, it can cause infections in all of those places. And in really serious illnesses, it can cause death, but that's extremely, extremely rare. Okay. So, of course, then, it's quite obvious why we have to monitor it, right? We, yes. We, we, we want to avoid contamination with E. coli, right, in our water streams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I have to ask you, what, what is an optical, or what are optical brighteners? Yeah, I also just found out about this recently when I started doing this study. Optical brighteners are chemical dyes. They're added into laundry detergents, toilet papers, um, clothes to brighten them. So when, they when we start to see these dyes in a river system, <clears throat> they're a good indicator of human sewage contamination that's getting in there, mostly from failing septic tanks because the optical brighteners are being collected in that gray water that you're flushing and that's coming out of your washing machine. So it's a good indicator of human fecal contamination in waterways. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about, about the study? How, how do you mix these two, E. coli and the optical brightener monitoring, please? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the study takes place in Wimberley, Texas, which is in the central Texas hill country. Um, the, the Cypress Creek, which runs through the city, it historically has really high levels of E. coli bacteria. There's this thing called the Clean Rivers Program, and it's a state water quality monitoring program that monitors for certain parameters, including bacteria. And we started to realize um, between 2016 and 2021 that these bacteria levels were really, really high in the creek. So we wanted to try to pinpoint potential sources that the bacteria was coming from. Um, we do conduct E. coli bacteria monitoring already on the creek, and so one way that to narrow down where the sources were coming from was with this thing we call tampling and where we sample for optical brighteners in the creek. And if we were, the goal was if we were um, picking up a lot of optical brighteners, then it was a indicator of human waste contamination in the creek. And this may sound a little bit common to you because you've been working with this, but when you say tampling, you actually mean that you use tampons for sampling. Yes. <laughs> okay, I have so many questions. Is, is this a common method, first of all? So it's actually a relatively new method. It just started showing up within the past decade, um, mostly in places around like the Chattanooga River on the East Coast or the Chesapeake Bay. They would take a tampon, unravel it, and put it in like a grate. And they would put this grate in a storm drain. And they're particularly monitoring for um, wastewater discharge. So it's really only ever been used on the East Coast of the United States. Luckily, there was a woman named Kelly Albus at UNT. She started to um, take note of this method, and it's really inexpensive, which is great for low-income communities and rural communities. And so she's the one that had the idea of putting it in a water bottle. We cut slits into the water bottle, and then we anchor it with rocks and put it into a stream for 24 hours to three days. The cool thing about optical brighteners are that they absorb to the cotton. And so we'll take the tampon and we'll shine a UV light on it. And if it fluoresces blue, then it's positive for optical brighteners. And sorry, but before using tampons, which is, you said it's something recent. Mm -hmm. Do you know what was the method they used to use? Yeah, so they would take a water sample and they would use a fluorometer, which is like this measuring device that can range from $2,000 to $20,000. And they would measure optical brighteners that way. Mm -hmm. But it's just not, that kind of cost isn't um, 
great for communities. It's a really expensive. Yeah, and and this is super super cheap, right? With yeah, tampons. it's about it's a little more than fifty cents per test. How do you measure the fluorescence in the tampon? So we have two types of test. One is a um, quantitative, or sorry, it is a qualitative test. So it's simply presence or absence. Mm -hmm. We can't really tell the amount, mm -hmm. but that's what the tampling. You take the tampon, bring it back to the lab shine a UV light on it, and if it fluoresces blue, it's positive. Okay. We have another way of um, measuring for optical brighteners, which is with our own fluorometer. It's cool. It's a handheld fluorometer, so it's cheaper. It's meant for citizen science communities. Um, I'm pretty sure it was less than $2,000, and we take water samples, and we measure optical brighteners with that, too. Is there any chance that you can get a false positive? So what I mean by this is that you get a fluorescence tampon, but it's not because of these contaminants, it's because something else is fluorescent. Yes, I love that you mentioned that. Um, I'm using this for my professional project, so one of the things I had to do was a literature review, mm -hmm. and we found out um, that organic matter also fluoresces. There are a lot of things that naturally fluoresce in the environment, and so there are methods to go about um, minimizing the chance of a false positive. So what we do with our water samples is Well, first off, with the tampling, if it's not a blue fluorescence, then it's not optical brighteners. It's something else, algae, um, soil, sediment, things like that. With the fluorometer, what we have to do is we call it UV exposure. We take a water sample, we uh, measure its initial reading. So say the initial reading is eight, and then we expose it to UV light for five minutes. The reason we do this is because optical brighteners, they photo decay, or so they break down in light faster than organic matter, way faster at an exponential rate. So we'll expose it, the water sample, to UV light for five minutes. Then we'll take another measurement. That measurement will go down from eight to three. Then we expose it to UV light again, so now for 10 minutes, and we take another measurement, and we graph that. And if it's an exponential rate, then it's positive for optical brightness. That's brilliant. Yeah, wow, what a good idea, yeah. And so you mentioned that you use citizen scientists to do this, right? Yes. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next blog. Like, we're going to focus on that. But my question regarding this is, how did they receive the fact that they have to work with tampons? It's great because we, we are, we're actually working with teachers um, and teacher citizen scientists before we um, implement it into the state. And they're using it with kids as well, their classes. And it was received really well. It's amazing. There wasn't any, um, like, reservations about using tampons It's a natural um, method for, you know, periods and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was received really well, and everyone was really excited because it's so inexpensive, and it allows regular people to get out into their local waterways and test for something like this. Nice. And then, so how's the, how's the quality of the water that you tested? Not great. Not great? Yeah, oh. no. So bacteria levels are really high there, and optical brightener levels are really high. The area has been serviced by septic tanks historically. Um, so you can either be serviced by septic tank or you can be serviced by a wastewater treatment plant. A lot of times in low income or rural communities, it's going to be septic tanks. And a lot of these septic tanks are over 40 years old. So they're failing. And we knew that about the, um, the city. So right now, the goal is to collect a little bit more data just to prove Yes, this is a problem in the community, and then offer some types of recommendations to the city. Have you, so I guess you haven't reached out to the city yet? No, not yet. We, we actually reached out 
a few weeks ago because we want to conduct a dye tracing study. We think that this is the last bit of data that will confirm it's coming from septic tanks. And we have a partner um, in the community that wants us to put dye in their septic. And we're going to be there for the next week and see if it shows up in the creek. Nice. And you, from the results I, I, I read in your, in your poster, you see an increase in E. coli bacteria after rainfall events. What, can you explain to people why is that? Yeah, so E. coli bacteria, it can, it can come from a lot of different sources and it's everywhere in the environment. It's trapped in sediments. Um, if you have a dog that you let poop outside, it'll just be on the ground. And when it rains, that rainfall on the surface, it collects everything in its path as it's making its way to the river. And so it collects all of this bacteria and it just dumps it straight into the creek and that's why levels get higher. Mm -hmm. And in your study, you make a distinction between point sources of contaminations and non-point sources of contamination. Yes. Can you explain what that means, please? Yeah, so a point source, um, there's a lot more regulation for point source contaminants um, because we can, we know that it's where it's directly coming from. Okay, this sewage pipe is just dumping straight into the creek or something like that. There's a clear identifiable place that the point source is coming from compared to non-point source we don't exactly know where it is coming from it's coming from a variety of different places and so regulations are a little less um restrictive there and in your poster i saw there was a picture of um of a of a sorry how do you call this like um, a bridge sorry. oh yeah a bridge was that a point mutation uh, a point mutation this is my work was that a point source of contamination yeah we were we when we started the study we thought we were only going to be working with non-point sources you know livestock from agriculture fields or leaking septic tanks all over the city but we've discovered a bat colony that roost underneath the bridge and they just directly deposit guano into the creek and so that is a point source yes but there's nothing you can do about that, right? So it's really hard to get rid of bat colonies. When we were looking it up, the only thing that people do is they go in and they directly take them out or they try to put them in a wildlife management area. We And then they'll like um, the bridge, the way the infrastructure is, there's little cracks um, in the cement and that's how the bats are getting up into there. So some people will go in after they take the bats out and they block those cracks so that the bats can't come back. The only thing is we realized that the Wimberley community is still heavily agriculture. And so the bats do have a purpose there, eating all the bugs and the pests at night. So our recommendation is probably just to kind of make it into a tourist attraction in Austin. I don't know if you've heard. Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard. That they'll come on to the bridge. All yeah, the people I've seen it see once, at least. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. But and and. Also, I don't think we have to blame the bats, right? This is just one source of contamination. Is, yes. it, is it super significant or compared to the other ones, it's not that bad? So I like that you mentioned it. Bats are natural. Wildlife pooping in rivers is yeah. natural. Um, so in this case, the, bat is, the bats are actually a big problem in the creek. We oh. can see that when they come and then they start having their babies and their babies are getting bigger, the bacteria levels get higher, but really only in that particular section right underneath the bridge. Most of the problem is coming from humans, so the leaking septic tanks. So that's why we didn't recommend killing the bats or getting rid of them in any type of way. I see, I see. And most of this study, or... Uh, or I imagine at least, if you're doing a study of rivers or river bodies in, in Texas, most of them are going to be in private land, right? Yes. Did you have any, any travel access in the river? 
Yeah, Texas is 90% or over 90% private land. And usually our citizen scientists will have a hard time, but this project was funded by a local private landowner. And yeah, and he gave us permission to be on his property, which was really great for us. So about um, 80% of our sites that we monitored were on his private property. And then the others we chose based on public access. So parking in a park and then walking to the river ourselves. That's really cool, right? Yeah, it's awesome. It's great to see private landowners wanting to participate in this kind of thing. Nice. So if you don't mind, let's do our first break. Of course. And for our first break, we're going to listen to the first song that you picked. And then we'll come back from the break with a song that you picked as well. All All right. Right now we're listening to Violet Skies by Snow Allegra. Is that is that well pronounced? Yes. Okay. And before the break we were listening to Nat King Cole by Alicia Keys. Yep. And we were talking in, in the break that I didn't I didn't know any of the songs that you that you suggested, which I like because I like when people <laughs> recommend music that I don't know. But I did know Alicia Keys. But what what um my attention is that Nat King Cole he's an iconic singer right? yeah so a this is iconic a, actor and singer actor and singer so this is a tribute song I guess mm-hmm. or, okay um, do you, do you want to do you have a particular reason why you picked these songs yeah these are just a few songs from some of my favorite female artists I think all of them have the a similar theme of trying to find your identity in this type of world nice to get my feelings high. 
Alright, let's talk about citizen science, please. Awesome. This is a topic that, topic that, yeah, to me, it's really interesting as well. And so first of all, I have to ask you, like, what, what does citizen science mean? Yeah, so it's really great. It's a great opportunity for regular people to get into the science world without needing a professional background in science at all. So a citizen scientist is different from a professional scientist. What you do is you get trained and certified in some type of um, data collection measure, and you start to collect data on a regular basis. So you have to train them. Yes, we have to train them um, just because we want to make sure the data is of a good quality. Okay, so how, how, does, how does it work? You advertise, we need volunteers for this, or do, is it a paid position? Or So uh, it's all volunteer work, which is, um, we love that. Uh, there's, I think people are always looking for ways to volunteer in their local communities. But the cool thing is Texas Stream Team is a nonprofit organization that is the statewide volunteer citizen scientist program. And so what we do part, um, in specific, because there's all different types of programs across the nation and then across the world, we monitor for water quality data. So we have different trainings, standard core, um, probe core, advanced, E. coli, riparian. We train citizen scientists um, for a period of four hours, just one day, on how to collect this type of data. And then they usually already have a spot on a water body that they want to protect and monitor at. And then we, we collect that data, we house it at the Meadow Center here in San Marcos, and the data is used to help protect the 191,000 miles of Texas waterways. Wow. How reliable is that, da that data? We're really lucky here in Texas. We had a woman, Kelly Albus again, she did a study in 2020 to compare the Texas Stream Team citizen science data to the state um, TCEQ data, and it was over 80% on average, and in even partner cities, it was 91% um, accurate. So we have a really high accuracy rating here in Texas. Wow, that's amazing. How many volunteers do you have working for this particular project? Or, or at least in the, in the project that you showed the results, how many were involved? Oh man, so for that one, it, because it was privately funded um, and we haven't really gotten it out to our citizen scientists yet, it was only about five people that were helping, but Since our inception in 1991, we've trained over 10,000 citizen scientists. Wow. Uh, on average, about 800 um, are monitoring per year. So pretty, pretty good stuff. Wow. And, and I imagine that when you expose a regular person, which I hate to call it a regular person, like a non-scientific person, mm -hmm. to, to science and to, to data collection and stuff like this, they, come up, they must come up with really interesting and out-of-the-box questions. Oh, yes, all the time. That's, I'm actually a trainer. I'm certified to train citizen scientists in certain types of um, trainings. And one of my favorite things is interacting with them. They always have questions about how do the chemical processes work in a stream. Um, I don't even know that kind of stuff. We can direct them to resources. But we're all kind of like non-professional scientists working together towards a common goal. And has any of them come up with a great idea that you actually implemented or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so far we have a lot of citizen scientists who um, they would tell us, hey, we see a lot of trash at our monitoring sites. You guys should have some type of thing that says 
how much trash I collected. So we added that into our monitoring form. So that was one thing that um, a citizen scientist helped out with. Or documenting how many fish and ducks and plants they see. It's really great for long-term historical data. And do you, do you get, um, so for example, so this, this is volunteer work, yes. right? And I guess they have to do this sampling once or twice a week, more or less? For us, they do it once a month. Once a month, okay. Mm -hmm. So since it's volunteer, what happens if they just don't do it? Yeah, if they don't do it, that's not, we really can't do anything about that. So we take a proactive measure. We try to encourage our citizen scientists to keep going out and monitoring. We have a newsletter that comes out every quarter that highlights really cool citizen scientists that are out there doing what they are doing. And we just try to have a lot of opportunities to encourage them to continue what they're doing. Um, one thing we like to tell them is your data is being put to a good use. You're not just collecting it and it's just getting stored away somewhere. It's actually used in San Marcos, the San Marcos River Foundation used the data to increase the effluent standard that the wastewater treatment plant is discharging into the river. So we like to tell them stories like that so it keeps them encouraged. Nice. And I imagine that, that these are people that come at least once a month or only once a month they, they work as scientists. Yes. So their enthusiasm is not... It doesn't have this process of decay that a scientist may have. You, yeah. know, you, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. when you're on it, you may not be seeing all the time like how awesome the stuff that you're doing actually is. Definitely. But then you have this influx of energy from the volunteers that come and once a month and this is awesome and this is amazing, this is the best thing. It, it, does that happen to you? Yeah, it's great. Well, we usually have a citizen scientist and we encourage them just do one spot, just do one site. You know, they do it for a couple of months. And then like you're saying, that energy doesn't go away and they just want to start doing more. So we have a few citizen scientists who monitor three or six sites on a monthly basis. Wow. Wow. So you mentioned that there's 190,000 miles of waterways in Texas. More, Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And and that's the amount. So citizen scientists are monitoring more than actually the state does. Is that true? Yeah, so the state um, the state monitors on a quarterly basis, so about every three months in certain areas. Uh, the great thing about Texas Stream Team is our citizen scientists fill in those gaps that the state can't. And it's the great thing about citizen scientists is it saves a lot of money and it saves a lot of time. All of the state scientists have to get paid to go out. That's why they only go out on a quarterly basis because our state doesn't want to pay them to go out all the time. So our citizen scientists help do that for them and it's a great way to collect more data on all of our wonderful waterways. How do you recruit them? We, okay, so we have a calendar that shows all of our trainings and it's public, it's on a website. Do you want to promote it? Like yeah, Texas Stream Team um, dot org is that website. And I guess they have Instagram and all the social... Yes, okay. you can look us up anywhere and we'll probably pop up. One of the best ways we can recruit citizen scientists is we partner with local communities. So, like, for example, one of our partners is the city of Dallas. They're one of our biggest partners. And we partner with the city of Dallas. We train some city staff there. And then they're the ones who really can connect with their community better than we could. And they recruit their own local citizen scientists. I heard a recent interview that you participated in, and you said that you are that protecting the environment for future generations is your career goal. Yes. So, what is your next step towards? You're currently finishing your master's degree. Yes. What would be your next step towards that goal? Yeah. So I'm expected to graduate in December, this December, 
Um, and once I do that, I think the best way for me to go about that goal is working with nonprofit organizations. There's so many environmental nonprofits in this local area who are dedicated to community education and outreach. And I align myself with that. So my goal is to either work with nonprofits or work for cities in furthering community education and getting these people um, trained as citizen scientists. And I'm going to quote you again. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and you say that you can make sustainable choices in my daily life to create change. Yes. Can you please inspire the audience by, by sharing some examples of how, how you can do that? Yeah. I know it's kind of hard sometimes to ask people to do these types of things. Um, you always hear the classic, turn off your faucet when you're brushing your teeth. But something I do is um, I take my coffee thermos to like my favorite coffee shop and they'll actually fill that thermos up and not use a cup. So you're like saving um, plastic waste from that end. But my biggest thing is if we all volunteer uh, just a little bit of our time per month to doing something we love to do, then we can make a big change. Like in San Marcos, the city has so many cleanup and volunteer opportunities that they that citizens can participate in. So just doing something like that, just something small, whenever you can, I think can make a big difference. Yeah, you actually mentioned that that you participate during a, a big river cleanup and that you find like so many random stuff, yeah. right? For example, what? We participated in a cleanup in the fall and it was really great. We had this crew who was the brave ones, we called them. They were like sludging through all the mud and they found a mattress, probably from like illegal dumping. We found a, unfortunately, we found a homeless camp. It was um, damaged and abandoned, but it just is eye-opening to see all of these types of relationships that people have with their environment. And we also found a lot of microplastic, um, old like deep freezer or a dump refrigerator. It's in a lot of tires. Tires is the number one weirdest thing that we find all the time, no matter what. So a lot of dumping, I think, is what it's coming from. People just throw it in the river and forget about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't I just found out that like you can't take your trash to a, like an apartment complex and dump it in their dumpster. That's illegal. So I think of people instead of like paying for trash collection services because they are kind of expensive, they just like throw it in their environment, which is not a good alternative at all. So this is the last quote I'm I'm going to do from you, okay? okay. I promise. <laughs> you say and and this is related to to citizen science as well. You say I wish other people knew how valuable the data we collect is. And that is being used for waterway protection. Yes. What what kind of what kind of data you collect? Yeah, we collect a lot of different type of water quality data, including pH, um, dissolved oxygen, so how much oxygen is in the water for the plants and the animals, conductivity, which is an indicator of the total dissolved solids, riparian evaluation, how well the vegetation looks on the banks of the rivers. We just there's a lot of data that we collect nitrates, orthophosphates, but it's all important to some type of legal action. The whenever you want to make a change um, in your local waterway from a policy standpoint, the state needs a lot of data to do that, a lot of data to confirm that there is a problem. And so our citizen scientists are doing a good thing by collecting all of that baseline data for us and saying, hey, there is a problem we've been monitoring for a decade now. Let's do something about it. Um, from the variables that you say that you collect, like pH, conductivity, and all that, mm -hmm. so that requires another kind of training, right? Yeah, so our standard core training um, collects pH, dissolved oxygen, conductivity, and then field observations, like did it the water smell any type of way? Does it look 
brown or does it have a color to it? And that's the first training that you can take. And then other ones after that are the advanced training, which does stream flow, nitrates, so like fertilizers and things like that, and orthophosphates. We have a different riparian training that does the riparian evaluation. E. coli bacteria, it's its own separate training. So yeah, we have a lot of different options for citizen scientists, again, to keep them encouraged. If you're interested in bacteria, we have just a bacteria training for you. If you're interested in just dipping your toes into water quality, you don't want to commit too much, standard core. Nice. So let's do our last break. Okay. And then when we come back, I'm going to ask you a little bit more personal questions, like how do you get in science and stuff like this. Okay, great. Is that right? So before the break, we were listening to Didn't 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 You Know Didn't You Know Yeah by Erica Badu Badu, mm -hmm. and now we're listening to Closer by Goalep Gopali. Okay, thank you. There's no way <laughs> I was gonna pronounce that. Yeah. <laughs> So why did you pick these songs? Yeah, um, there's some, a few of my favorites from female artists, like I was mentioning, and they're just empowering. Like the last song, for example, she's saying she's getting closer to her dreams. And as you mentioned, I'm more in the professional science world, so you do get discouraged every now and again, and you feel like, am I really doing the right thing? Am I headed towards the right path? So these songs just help remind me every day you're getting closer and closer to you, what you, your goal. Is there a particular reason why you picked all female artists? Yeah, I just think we don't get enough recognition and enough love. And I just, yeah, I'm a, 
I'm a female, so I wanted to just give the women some love. <laughs> yeah, and talking about that, do you think there's enough representation in STEM? So it's great because we're definitely seeing an increase of women in STEM, but I think there's definitely a culture of discouraging women in STEM. And then as a woman myself, you'll be in some classes that are like very male dominated and you just feel like you're not welcome there. So it's nice to see that it's slowly starting to open up and more women are getting excited about being in some type of STEM major. Nice. Why did you decide to, start, to study geography? Yeah, it's really funny. I always knew I was into the environment. I was always an outdoorsy kind of kid. And when I was deciding what to do with my life, you know, we're cho choose, a, choose a major, this is what you're going to do forever. I said, you know what, I love to be outdoors. I love nature and I want to protect her. So geography was the best major for that. It's very general. So I was really learning about everything, air, water, land, energy. And then from there, I knew I would probably be able to like narrow it, my focus down. Mm -hmm. When you enrolled for geography, did you imagine you'll end up doing what you do now? No, I had no idea where I was going to end up. I actually, my minor was in agriculture. So I didn't know if I wanted to do like some type of agriculture work or water protection like I'm doing now or wildlife management. I didn't know that I was going to end up here at all. Because without judging, right? But what you do, it seems to me that's more like a biologist work than a geographist. I'm I saying without judging because I don't know what a geographist does, to be honest. So what you do, it seems like, like you are more of a biologist. Yeah, it's interesting. I think geography majors, we all kind of end up here for different reasons. But it is like this gateway into environmental protection. And so... Um, I work as with a nonprofit organization, so I'm not very focused on one thing. Um, for me right now, it's water kind of, but yeah, every day I learn something new. And right now, I guess my research really is more on a biology standpoint, standpoint from the bacteria and everything going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have been some of the most exciting or rewarding, rewarding moments of your scientific journey so far? Do you, do you remember? Hmm, I love learning. I could stay in school forever. I think, <laughs> yeah, I really could if I would. I would if I could, but I think some of my favorite things is when you learn about the past and it kind of opens up your eyes to everything that's happening now. Like now, like for example, nearby in Wimberley, Jacob's Well is drying up and you hear like all of, oh, Texas aquifers are drying up and you're wondering as a student why. But then you learn eventually later on in your classes that, Texas water law, we separate surface water and groundwater. And so we don't really, um, our law doesn't account for the connectivity of those things. And so that leads to things like over pumping of aquifers. And then it just starts to realign all of the problems. You start to understand, yeah, this, these things are happening for a reason. <laughs> so you like, you enjoy having the understanding that some people don't, right? Yeah, I guess I just love learning all of these really interesting things. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of empowering in a way. Yeah. Like you actually understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's fascinating once you understand. It is so fascinating. Yeah, you can either, you understand how you're a part of the problem and then you kind of learn how the right way to go about fixing it. And I was a little uh, hesitant to ask you this question because you're so young still. Mm -hmm. But then I realized you're the right person to ask this question. And the question is, what advice would you give to younger scientists or younger people are thinking of becoming scientists? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess my first piece of advice would be to just like stick with it. Like when you asked me if I knew I was going to end up here, I didn't. 
And so first I would say just stick with your goals. If you want to pursue a scientific career, you'll you'll get there somehow, you know, you'll, if you participate and you dedicate yourself to your studies and you volunteer, those opportunities will show up. I like this quote that says, luck is a bus. You just need the ticket to get on. So doing all of the work that you're doing now, you will get that ticket to get on this bus. And then also, like you're saying, we never see ourselves as scientists. So if you start to reimagine yourself, like, yes, I am a scientist. I'm doing the work. I think it'll help you along your career path. Nice. Would you suggest a student during his bachelor degree to get involved, like in, to have to try to have research experiences? Yes. Early. It's, it's great because it depends on what college you're going to. But here at Texas State University, and a lot of other colleges are doing this now. They're opening up a lot of opportunities for undergraduate students to participate in research. So if you make um, relationships with your professors and you volunteer you'll start to learn what you like to do and then you'll find a research opportunity there for you so if you don't mind i'm 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 gonna ask you about like your personal life a little yeah bit. of course um no first sorry after you finish your master's degree are you gonna go for a phd I don't think so. I'm, I've been told that if I'm unsure of going for a PhD, don't do it. It's a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of effort. But maybe I'll take a little bit of a break and see where I'm at. I found out I really do actually like conducting research. And so I know that's what a PhD is all about. But we'll see how it goes. Maybe, yeah, maybe not. You could conduct research in other places as well. I mean, yeah, it's, not only, it's not the only option. Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe right now, I don't think I'm going to. But you, you def so it sounds like you definitely want to stick around research. Yeah, I think research is the best way to find solutions to like all of our problems. And it's great because I'm kind of already near the end of my or I'm jumping off in my professional career. But I think a lot of undergraduates and I talk to a lot of younger people, they are so smart and they have all of these ideas of how to change the world. And I think research is the best way to go about that. <laughs> nice. So now, now, yes, I'll ask you. So you're so responsible and and. You do a lot of work and a lot of stuff. What what do you do off work or off off your studies? Oh yeah, outside of work. Yeah. Um, I love camping a lot. I like going outdoors and being in nature. Um, one of my favorite state parks isn't too far from here. It's the Pedernales River State Park. It's great. Um, I like to do some backcountry hiking and camping. I'm actually trying to train myself right now to do through hiking, like where people hike the Pacific Coast Trail or the Appalachian Trail, and they're hiking like 30 miles per day and things like that. But other than camping, I'm really into true crime. When I was choosing my majors, it was between criminal psychology or some type of environmental stuff, but I chose environmental protection. So in my free time, I just research and listen to so many true crime stories. Do you have any good podcasts to share? Oh, yeah. So Bailey Syrian, okay, Bailey Syrian has a dark history podcast which sometimes it touches on true crime, but she has her own true crime segment. And then I watch all of my stuff on YouTube mostly. So Eleanor Neal is great. Um, Serial is a podcast that's good. I heard about it. Yeah, yeah, they. I think in their first season, they talk about this guy, Adnan Syed, and how he may be wrongly um, jailed for committing a murder. But yeah, Serial is pretty good. Yeah. Don't you get scared? I do get scared. Um, I think it's great for education purposes. I, we, I'm really comfortable meeting new people and making friends. So it's a good reminder that there are some crazy people out there who are wanting to hurt you. And it also gives you some, your, some of your own protection measures. Like, oh, this is what happened to this person just walking away from their car. So 
whenever you walk away from your car, just be more aware of your surroundings. <laughs> I always, I always wonder if, and maybe you know, if there's an episode of someone that committed a crime, got away with it, and then before he died, he said like, okay, this is how I did it, and this is how I got away. Wow. Do, I, do you know if there's any like that? I haven't heard something like that where he like dead Well, he actually like beats the system because in all the podcasts, they end up catching the guy, yeah. right? But I imagine there are some guys that get away. There has to be. I'm, I need to look into that more, but I have listened to a few where someone has like killed all of their wives. Like they've had five wives and killed four of them and now they're getting finally getting caught. So there's a lot of stories where people are serial killers and they're not getting caught for like over a decade later. Yeah, but in the end, they all get caught. They right? all get caught. Yeah. Or the ones we know of yeah, all get exactly. caught. That's mm -hmm. the creepy part. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm creeping myself out now. <laughs> and, and you say you're training for a, for a long hike. Do you have a particular one in mind? Yeah, so I was actually just told about The Way in Spain and Portugal. Um, usually long hikes in uh, North America are about a five month dedication time, but the way in Spain, it was a, um, a trail that was used by monks as like a pilgrimage for their religious beliefs, but it only takes about one month. So that's the first one on my bucket list to go and do. Wow. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Is there any organization you want to promote or website or, or you want to repeat again the volunteer? Yeah, stuff? I would love to promote Texas Stream Team is the first one. Um, you can find them if you just look up texasstreamteam.org. We'll pop up with all of our different types of trainings if you're interested in getting into citizen science. And I also want to promote um, the San Marcos River Foundation. They're the local foundation and their whole goal is protecting the San Marcos River. And so they have a bunch of volunteer opportunities there too and training opportunities. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you, if you want and you can, please try to participate in any of their activities. Right? Yeah. Thank you so much for being in Science Stories. Did you have a good time? Yes, I had a great time. Thank, Thank you for inviting me. Wow. Wow.